Welcome to Tahir Podcast, episode number seven. The guest today is uh, Ronnie Close. He's a filmmaker, author, and assistant professor of visual media, associate professor of visual media at the American University in Cairo. His most recent publication, Cairo's Ultras, Resistance and Evolution in, in Egypt's Public Culture. Is the book. Uh, <laughs> where he looks at Cairo's football communities, their cultural practices, the role they played in Egypt's 2011 revolution, and uh, their fan base. Egypt's biggest ultras groups have been outlawed in 2018, scrambled, and declared terrorist organizations. Welcome, close. Thank you very much, Abdullah. Nice to meet you. Same here. So what piqued your interest in, in Egypt, and how did you come to Egypt in the first place? Uh, okay, well, there's a very long version to this story, so I won't give you that. Um, but basically, I applied for the job in the AUC, the American University in Cairo, uh, in December 2010. And as we all know, uh, a month later was, you know, January the 25th. So um, I didn't presume that anything was going to happen to my application, you know, I thought that, you know, it's a country in revolution. So, you know, forget about that. But anyway, through a lot of kind of elongated uh, kind of uh, emails and processes, academic processes, I ended up getting offered a job. And it was obviously in 2011. Um, and I was really, really blown away by that. I mean, it was kind of like a very exciting time. Egypt had been you know, central to the uh, kind of what felt like a kind of tide of citizen activism that was, you know, across the world. And uh, obviously, particularly within the North African region. And, um, you know, I, I came to I came to Cairo first in November 2012, before I started a job. And, you know, I was just completely blown away by the kind of atmosphere uh, at that time and then began teaching in January to 2012 so just like just a couple of weeks before the anniversary first anniversary anniversary of the uprising um so yeah I mean it was it was you know it was a very exciting time and a very exciting country uh it felt like the sort of epicenter of a lot of things that were happening so it was more of there wasn't really a question of why come it was more like you know people were being really drawn to um to egypt and to cairo in particular uh you know it was an amazing kind of atmosphere then so i i really you know it was kind of an amazing uh point of entry into a country you know an introduction to a new life and a new place yeah when did you start thinking about the book I think it was ah. the first the, the film. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, just to kind of, I guess, kind of add on, build on to that. So, um, yeah, so I came in November uh, 2012, and I came after Maspiro, which was October, and before, like, the Battle of Muhammad Mahmoud, you know, so I was kind of in between those things, and you know, it was a very exciting time, but it was also a very volatile kind of atmosphere. There was, a, uh, I think, you know, a lot of pessimism around and frustration. 
Um, and, you know, so I was kind of as a, you know, a kind of newbie, you know, I was just sort of picking up on these uh, kinds of impressions. And I moved uh, in January 2012. And then literally, I think within three weeks, I, I remember it very, very clearly, uh, you know, the uh, Port Said incident on the 2nd of November or February, sorry. Uh, you know, I was literally, I'd been living in, in Cairo a couple of weeks. I barely started teaching in the university and it happened, you know, and I remember the, the, the kind of the, I remember the morning when, the, when I heard the news of what happened the day, that night before, and then just the way uh, the whole kind of city just transformed at that point and uh, the whole atmosphere switched. So for me, it felt like this was something that was, you know, this was another incident in a longer kind of period of struggle that had happened through 2011, that this felt like another one of these kind of momentous incidences. So I just, I, you know, it seemed like, you know, it was right on my doorstep. I was living in Zamalek at the time. So it was like I just had to go down to the athlete club, you know, to, to kind of experience what was going on. So I went down with a, a very, I borrowed a, a, a very basic camcorder from the AUC and went down and just started filming the, the sort of expressions, the kind of protests, but also the kind of as kind of a the chanting and singing there were like thousands of ultras there and I'd never really um I hadn't really got a background in football fan culture or anything I hadn't really uh taken much notice of the ultras anywhere and then to to sort of see it fusing with a kind of revolutionary spirit at that time um, and also being manifesting kind of a lot of anger as well, frustration. Uh, it was, you know, it was deeply affecting. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to encounter. It could have just ended that day, you know, it just could have been one, another kind of episode for me. But it's, yeah, it just seemed like an incredible event and, and just something that I needed to kind of unpick and understand myself. So, I began just filming and photographing all of the events that were happening. I was trying to meet ultras, uh, trying to just, you know, a bit like a kind of like a journalist. I was just sort of curious and I wanted to find out more. And um, as it sort of built up, uh, I then started to develop it into a longer term documentary project so uh i i'm originally irish so i had a, a filmmaker friends in ireland and we got some uh funding from the irish film board which is like a, a governmental uh agency to to you know develop projects and we got we got a small amount of money to um you know to kind of make a pilot what they call it you know to see you know to make a short kind of trailer intro about the project and then to try and bring it on to another level so anyway i worked with a, a production company and they came to cairo i think in december 2012 so I, I spent all of that year 2012 just getting to understand egypt getting to understand the ultras getting to understand 2011 in a more kind of visceral everyday 
level, you know, like in a more direct level. Um, and then I also started to try and meet with the ultras and to try and um, find out what happened in, in Port Said and also to get their agreement to participate in the documentary. Because the idea of the documentary would have been like one of these long feature documentaries, maybe an hour and a half um, that would have followed somebody or, or even just maybe two or three ultras who had been at Port Said uh, would have sort of followed and documented their life over, you know, like a year or something. This was the, the premise of the film. Um, and unfortunately, the film never really got to that second level because it's, it involves a lot of, you know, the kind of media industry stuff. And um, they're, they're generally very expensive. So that was on one side. And then also some of the ultras were, um, hesitant to be the kind of front person for the movement, you know, which is what they would have looked like. Um, given their kind of collective ethos, this was uh, a kind of conflict. So anyway, it, it sort of ran out of steam. But what was good about it was that, you know, we generated a lot of material. And I felt then that really what I could do with it is actually uh, put it together into a short film, a kind of more uh, if you like artistic kind of documentary type of approach and that's what I did and I had that screened and uh, exhibited uh, mostly in the UK but also in other places over the years it's actually at the moment it's part of a, an exhibition in uh, a museum in Gothenburg in, in Sweden um, which is on ultras culture globally so it's it's yeah. sort of it's like something that sort of circulates and the film itself, I think I finished it. I finished editing it in 2014 and it's kind of, it's kind of sort of gone, gone into different places and uh, I've left it open on my Vimeo account and it's been watched, you know, I don't know many times now, tens of thousands of times. So it's, it's a lot of people have seen it. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of my journey, but then the film ended you know, around 2014. Um, also, uh, as we all know, the sort of security situation changed. There was a kind of, you know, there was a clampdown. So it became much more problematic to, um, you know, to film anything, to interview people. There was a, an ethical issue there that, you know, you could actually um, compromise somebody's safety. So, I then began to work actually originally on an article, an academic article about the ultras uh, based on this kind of film research. I, I then switched a bit into writing. And that really actually, just that article basically grew into a book. It's like, as I started to write the article, I just thought, wow, it's like amazing. So far, nobody's actually written about this in a book. You know, people have written a lot of articles and yeah. in newspapers that got a lot of uh, media attention but there hasn't been a more if you like sustained examination and look at this kind of history and this culture this kind of subculture I guess in a way and how it fused with you know revolutionary politics for a whole society um, so you know it, it, it sort of really quite organically grew into a book um, that there were some ideas that I wanted to investigate that really the book allowed me to do yeah. 
And what are some of the difficulties that you faced while writing your book, like in terms of research and, and stuff like that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, I mean, the biggest difficulty in terms of researching was the fact that there was nothing to, to research. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I think there was one AUC student, um, I can't think of her name now, I think Dahlia was her first name. But anyway, she wrote a, a master's thesis on the ultras. Um, there had been one or two academic articles, um, but yeah. But there was very little literature to, to base it on. So that was one of the hardest things in terms of researching was that I was kind of, and probably the book reflects that, you know, I was kind of going out on my own. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, that was, that was definitely a difficult uh, aspect of it. Um, and, yeah, and, and I mean, essentially, I based it on my my kind of knowledge. I, I based it on the film, on the research I'd done, on the um, you know the more uh, kind of on the street. You know, the kind of act of filming and photographing is quite a you know it's a physical kind of one. You have to be there. You have to uh, you know, just put your body there in those spaces. And it was kind of, a lot of it was kind of, I guess, was built from those impressions, um, from talking to ultras, from trying to do interviews, from uh, meeting with different members, you know, it was quite an elaborate, uh, long process. So all of those things, uh, you know, built into the kind of foundation of it. Um, but I guess, you know, the most challenging thing was that I, I didn't have a kind of body of literature to base it on. So I, I, was, uh, I was kind of doing my own kind of theoretical readings of, of yeah. which I think was good for me, actually good liberating. for the, yeah, liberating and good for the, good for the, for the book itself, because I, I matched it up or I, I kind of used uh, Jacques Rancière's theories of dissensus and uh, you know how aesthetics can be political by, by being visible by being heard by being seen you know are all political acts you know so um i felt that these were kind of evidenced or justified through through the ultras yeah and how, how did you, how go ahead Grant. yeah so can i take a break because i've just realized the uh battery on the laptop is about to crash yeah yeah of course okay so i'll just get a power cable okay just give me one minute Okay, sorry about that. I yeah, completely, no <laughs> completely missed it. 
<laughs> just got a, an error notice there saying you need power and okay that, it, it didn't just cut off yeah 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 it was right down the last like slither but anyway we're good now yeah so how, how did the uh, the ultras emerge in egypt like what's the story of the emergence and that student that was studying in bologna university you know tell us more about that yeah sure um well um well, the ultras emerged in 2007, uh, firstly through the Al-Ahli uh, fan base, and then pretty quickly afterwards in the Zamalek one. And yeah, I mean, the, 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 one of the origins is that, you know, there are kind of conflicting ones, but, but that there was a uh, ultras uh, who was studying in Italy at, in, in Bologna, and had attended football games there as a football fan and had seen the Italian kind of ultras activities and, and what, a, what a football match is like. And then when they finished their studies, they came back to Egypt and, you know, from the kind of fan base, apparently a very, very small group, like, you know, like a handful of people, um, they started to, you know, make sort of displays you know they started to bring flares you know just which were you know these kind of tifos you know which are the, the ultras kind of terminology for uh, these activities you know they were just very uh pretty much kind of standard you know and, and it is one thing when you look at ultras movements in different parts of the world although they're all very different because they're culturally different and the, the histories and the local uh, stuff is is unique in a way, but they do all kind of perform the same kinds of things. You know, they have a, it's like there's like a sort of code book that they're using. So the the group in in Cairo just started to follow what he had seen and he had experienced in Italy uh, at 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 games, and you know. You know, from what I've been told that, you know, some of the football games, uh, particularly between, you know, the more minor teams in the National League, you know, are not particularly inspiring football matches, you know, and, the, or, you know, the, the, the crowd at the game might be quite small. You know, the whole thing is a bit, you know, it's a bit everyday, you know, it, it, it sort of, it lacked a kind of passion, you know, and that this fan behavior and this is something that very much interested me uh is what i've called reclaimed the stadium um so the kind of idea of how football functions and operates is you know you have you are the audience spectator you're at the stadium um and you know your kind of obligation is to follow the game and to react to the game and all this you know and it's kind of a fairly much a kind of even in in, in bigger tournaments it's actually a very sort of staged managed kind of event so it lacks what i would say is a kind of spontaneity you know it lacks something kind of human and what the ultras did is they turned the tables on this they sort of you know they sort of don't not all that interested in what the football game is happening and they are actually creating their own spectacle in the stadium space so they're creating their own kind of autonomous 
free space that they express themselves. And usually it's at the expense of the opposing team, but often at the hierarchy of the team that they support as well. You know, so does, I mean, we know that with Zanalik, there's uh, the, the white knights have got, you know, very antagonistic relationship with the owner of Zamalik Mortada, you know, and there's been a number of incidences there. Um, so, so this is, and this is a general kind of culture of ultras in across the world. They, they, they have a sort of antagonistic relationship with the club, um, with the hierarchy of the club. Uh, they challenge the kind of the, perhaps the kind of business operation of, of the club. And also, I mean, just important to footnote that, um, you know, ultras groups across the world reflect a spectrum of beliefs, you know, so at times they can be um, pretty fascistic and right wing, um, right over to the opposite spectrum of being, you know, uh, you know, anarchist, leftists, whatever. Um, so, so they reflect the spectrum of political ideologies, um, but the one kind of central thing they, they all move towards are, is, is this kind of autonomy. You know, they re reclaim their own right to uh, have their own political stance, if you like, even if that's at odds with the, with the club that they support. Yeah. And um, like the ultras in Egypt have been, you know, throughout the revolution in 2011 and that period, they've been like gradually reframed to be the, um, the revolutionary uh, youth. So how, how did that process take place? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, the, mm. when, two, when, when the, I guess when the, uh, the uh, promotion of, the 25th of January was happening, 2011. When that was happening, and something was in the air, you know, if you like, um, and yeah. people were, uh, there was a kind of online consensus developing towards uh, a protest at the, on that day. The ultras disassociated themselves from it. They officially announced on their Facebook pages, which was their main communication to the world, that they did not, as an organization, take, uh, were not political. They were not overtly political and they were not going to support a, a you know, a political uh, protest. They were just, that wasn't what they were about. They're foot, they say they're football fans only. And again, this is a kind of common enough, um, you, some people might find it paradoxical or something uh, and we can go into that a bit more if you want, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. but there is actually a logic to it. And I, I think I understand the logic to a degree. Um, and what is that logic? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the, 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 yeah, I mean, the logic is that I think it's, it's, it, it sort of overlaps with some of what Rancière is talking about with the, the census uh, theory that, you're not part of a consensus. You're not interested in consensual politics. You're not interested in gaining, uh, you know, a broad-based movement or a, 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 you know, like a, a kind of, you're not really actually interested in democracy or democratic processes. 
Um, the census is more of a marginal position where you assert your rights as a citizen. You assert your own autonomy to be whatever it is you want to be. And you're not looking for a majority validation. Like, so the ultras do not look for anyone in society to, to validate them, to support them. They just do what they do. If that makes them more marginalized from the mainstream, that's fine. They don't look towards the mainstream uh, to, you know, to, to kind of get what they're about. So the ultras saying, actually, we're not part of this, um, you know, uh, political movement that was emerging, or I guess many, many different political movements and agendas from different uh, parts of Egyptian society for them to say, actually, we're not part of this. We're gonna, we're just doing our own thing. We're football fans. But where the paradox comes in, of course, is that uh, the ultras were a youth movement, and that you know the people who supported the the uprising in two thousand eleven were generally drawn from the youth, right? They were that's who they were, and secondly, that the ultras were. Uh, the, probably the largest youth movement that had a track record of confrontation with the police and with the state, direct confrontation. They had openly challenged the authority of the police, right? So when, that, when the protests on Tahrir evolved as all kind of revolutionary movements do, um, nearly all of them evolve into some kind of violent conflict with the state, right? So um, the ultras were, as youth uh, and as people who had experienced uh, state oppression, and also many of them from mostly from working class backgrounds, had were, were invested in a more uh, egalitarian society. Um, they were obviously involved, and everyone who was involved on the streets knows that they were part of of what happened in two thousand eleven. But it's like officially in their own uh, kind of collective ideology, they, they had to sort of slightly disassociate from a direct political stance. In other countries, other ultras have taken a more forthright political stance, like I said, you know, on a wide spectrum of, of political uh, beliefs. But in the Egyptian case, I think they, they just sort of, sort of hovered a little bit through 2000, 2011 officially. But of course, in reality, the, the situation on the ground was different. Yeah. And in the book, you make interesting observations and conclusions regarding the uh, both massacres that took place for both uh, ultras groups. Can you expand more about that? The Port Said massacre and the uh, Air Force Stadium massacre. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what do you mean exactly? Can you give me, what, what, what's the question you want me to answer on that? Like, um, do you think there were other reasons for why it happened? Like, was it just an accident? Like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, well, I think two incidences are different, right? Um, okay. uh, they're very different. In, I mean, they're both to do with crowd control, right? I mean, that's essentially what they are. Um, but to look at Port Said first. Um, I mean, regardless of, you know, I, I think obviously 
in a way, the timing of it uh, coming at the almost, you know, just after the anniversary of the first revolution, at that time, really, there was a lot of political uncertainty about the course of what the new agenda was going to be. But there was a sense that there was a kind of control being exerted again, you know, that the, that the, the state was starting to reorganize itself. Um, and regardless of what you may think of what happened, you know, in Port Said, and what we know is very, very little, what we have to go on, and this is one of the challenges I had in the book, is you have media reports from the time. I mean, it was a live football game, so it was broadcast live on television. But there are a number of very suspicious things that happened in the, in the run-up to the game and during the game. Um, the, I mean, we know that, you know, there was no effective security at the game. You know, there was no searches. So people were able to enter the stadium carrying weapons. We know that happened. We know the Baltagaya or, you know, were paid to go there. And I mean, that's been, that's been documented through the media at the time. And we know that the gates were locked, right? In one case, the, the back gate, which would have been the exit for the Ultras fans. So there were a thousand Al-Ahli fans there. Um, most of them died actually in the tunnel trying to escape. And that, in fact, the death toll could have been even larger if the gate hadn't have actually collapsed from the pressure and from apparently an ultra, if not more, that were outside trying to release the gate. Now, locking a gate at a football stadium is against FIFA's rules, right? It's actually, it's dangerous. There have been a number of incidences uh, previously in football stadiums where crowd control is a problem. So the, the rationale as to why those, that stadium was locked at that, you know, on that game. I mean, it wasn't a big game. You know, this was a kind of midweek fixture. You know, it wasn't a weekend game. It wasn't, you know, there was a bit of rivalry and animosity between Al Mostri and Al Atli, okay, between Port Said and Cairo. You know, they're two cities that, you know, maybe have this kind of antagonistic relationship. But there was nothing really at stake. And also that, you know, Al Masri won the game, right? You know, they won 3-1. Yeah. So usually when there's a, a pitch invasion, it's because the home team are, you know, have lost or, or that there's something at stake. You know, there was some, it's a cup game, it's a league game or whatever. This was just a very ordinary fixture halfway through the season. You know, there was nothing major. Um, there was a pitch invasion at halftime. So there was the, the, the whole atmosphere was very volatile in the stadium. And again, the ultras who were there, the, the uh, thousand ultras, you know, felt under threat from, from the, in the stadium. They felt like there was something happening. So, it, I mean, the, the Al-Athli players themselves had to run, you know, and save themselves. I mean, it was just, it was a complete... Uh, things were completely out of control. I mean, that's obviously what happened. But there were also structural things that, that happened that are suspicious. Um, also that there was very little uh, forensic evidence taken. So the, the, the people who could be charged, the, the evidence there was just not done in a way that you would expect for an incident of that 
severity and gravity to happen. Um, so what you then end up with is you end up in a kind of conspiracy theory territory, you know. Um, so, you know, nobody can say for sure what happened one way or another, because um, there's just no evidence to really, or there's very little evidence to go on. And what evidence there is indicates towards things being unusual, you know. So, uh, so where those decisions are made, where those things happen, what level they happen at, who, where does the responsibility go? Like I said, you're, you're just back into like conspiracy theory, theory territory, um, as you have with many, many uh, incidences that happened in both in Egypt and in other countries when you don't have this kind of transparency. Um, so I think that's one issue. The second issue or the second uh, case is the, uh, the uh, Zamalek uh, White Knights uh, incident in 2015. And again, this was again a kind of failure of, of crowd control. It was a failure of policing. Um, you know, it was, it was an incident where there had been a number of tickets released, I think around 5,000, but I might be wrong on that. Yeah. And that they were not distributed, you know, they were, so the ultras are obviously the people who are most invested in it, or one of the most people invested in the team, and they want to go to a game when there is a game. There are so few games from 2012 with Port Said right up to like 2018, 19. So there's almost no games for these fans to go to. So there is a game, so they're obviously going to go to it. I mean, it's it's like it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. And then to only issue a small number of tickets to be administered through the club, through the, the kind of network, and then obviously knowing the the kind of culture of the president of, of Zamalek and how he's going to distribute those tickets. It, it was a recipe for disaster. And then they decided to have this sort of strange barbed wire enclosed fencing to, to let fans access the game. So you had thousands of people crowding into this small space that was a cage, basically with barbed wire and that's how the massacre ensued i mean it was just it's again you know looking at the fifa handbook you know this is this is totally off the scale this is something that fifa would never support so again there's these irregularities um are is what's leading to these uh in, you know these violent incidences yeah and um, I was going to ask you about what you think regarding, you know, whether the, the state has uh, been effective in, in effectively like dismantling these uh, groups. But then I remembered, I think it was 2017, early 2017, um, I'm a Zamalek fan. So um, at that certain point, I was actually into football and I went to a number of matches in, in Alexandria, my hometown. And so... I recall, you know, we used to chant these chants and it, there was relative freedom in the chants we used to repeat. And then I remembered the following year, 2018, um, 
like you could see plain clothes personnel like wearing suits you know they all look the same <laughs> um like they're spread out you know so it was you felt the tension that you could no longer chant as you freely once did but actually ironically at that certain match i attended i think it was the cup something like that we uh, you know turkey al sheikh right <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know the famous uh, chant. <laughs> yeah. We chanted that at that point. And the thing is, I remember when someone started it, everyone was kind of you know, there are plain clothes personnel everywhere. You know, you could be taken. But then again, everyone started chanting the same chant. So it was like you know you can't arrest us all. <laughs> so I thought that was. Uh... And at that point, I think they were already um, like dismantled. So that made me think, you know, that phenomena in particular cannot be dismantled. Like it could be weakened, but then again, you you can't set certain boundaries. So what do you think regarding that issue? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the um, the state has, like it has actually very successfully dismantled all opposition groups and has actually... um, and not even opposition groups. I mean, it's just it's 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 the boundaries of its um, interference is very broad. I mean, it's like it's imprisoning girls doing TikTok videos. I mean, it's just it's it you know there's no end to it in a way. The kind of control and censorship. Um, so it was kind of I guess looking back, it was obvious that the ultras were going to come under that spotlight. Um, you know, um, and there was a history of repression, like I said, I mean, of ultras getting arrested, but also, I mean, getting pre-arrested before big games and stuff like that. I mean, this was going on right from their foundation. Um, And then around 2016, 17, there was a lot of them in prison at that time. And, you know, the arrests, I think they arrested around 300 in one scoop one time. but I actually think the thing that um, that the state, what the state did most effectively, though, um, I think, was that by removing the football stadium space and by limiting the access to it and by, like you say, even controlling it when they did allow the access, they removed the kind of autonomy of that space and... You know, it may still survive in some form and it may, I don't know, people may resist a little bit, but I think they've, they've curtailed it, if you like. It's, it's you know, the, the, I think the influence of that stadium space previously actually transcended the stadium space. I think it affected people in all ways, actually, and they maybe brought that out into their own lives in different places, you know, in different ways. Whereas I think now um, there may be a little bit of chanting, but when you actually really think about it, I mean, you know, how on, on a scale of subversion, you know, how, you know, how, how, how dangerous is that? You know, I mean, it's there, but it's not, it's not like anything really, it's not going to destabilize a state, you know, um, a bit of chanting at a football game now, even when people feel emboldened enough to do it. And even when that, fan base is is the same um because obviously the fan base is changing uh, as time goes on 
and I think this is what the state were most effective about is they 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 you know they sort of banned and then limited the access to football culture for so long you know like a, a six-year ban you know that was only opened up for African Cup games and the odd game here and there um, is is very very effective over time because people get older uh, the younger people coming through have never experienced that so it's like it, it, it's sort of becoming a distant memory um, and and I think this is what they've done most effectively they've kind of made the ultras a kind of distant memory I'm not saying it's not there and it and the feelings are not there and the uh, orientation or the, the drive or the necessity and the concept is still alive in people's heads you know for sure and in their hearts or whatever you know but it's not it's not manifest so in a public sense there's very little visible manifested resistance and that's what they've really effectively managed you know through a number of of avenues and, and ways so i don't know what it's like for somebody um that might have been involved in the ultras if the ultras were allowed to exist freely and openly you know um mm. so yeah i guess you know it's it's I mean, who knows? I mean, it's all it's all speculative at the end. Um, what there is, but I think what there is visibly and in a, in a kind of real life way is is not certainly as it once was. So it it has. I mean, the ultras themselves as movements have disbanded. So I mean, there's no better, uh, if you like, statement <laughs> about the the situation in the current uh, climate than that really. Mm. And in the book you made, um, like you looked at some global differences, like um, you looked at um, that Brazilian ultras group and that stadium instance, and you looked at uh, Baita Ushalayim, Baita Jerusalem, the uh, Zionist openly racist team. Um, so like comparing that to Egypt and the, the ultras movement in Egypt, what are some of the most notable differences you've, you've come across? Okay, well, I mean, I think the what you're talking about in Brazil is what's called the Torcidas, and that's yeah. almost the. I mean, the ultras were the ultras movement was born in Italy. You know, came out of Italian football culture in the '60s. Um, again, that's hard to trace exactly, uh, yeah. but it certainly emerged in that context, and that's why all the terminology is Italian. Um, uh, but the Torcidas actually predates that by decades, actually, and Brazilian football was explicitly political, and the uh, Torcidas there are um, in some ways pretty much, you know, similar to the ultras, uh, you know, the whole concept of samba football, you know, is coming out of Brazil, so it's, you know, these, there's these like musical troops that are playing in the in the stadium space um so it's a sort of carnivalesque atmosphere at the football game and again what's ha happening on the game is kind of not the main importance in the in the event the event is really driven in the stadium and in the particular ultras corner so there's a whole history there fascinating history that uh, has been well documented 
and then I think, yeah, I mean, I used that example of uh, Israel um, and that, you know, Israeli, that sort of those Zionist teams and fan bases that, you know, um, I think in, in what I write about is about how, you know, two Muslim players were, uh, there's actually a great documentary on that as well. Um, how they got two Muslim players and how that, you know, they were completely intimidated out of the team. Uh, and in fact, like Israel itself uses football and I was, I was using Israel because I was also contrasting the, uh, the ultras in Glasgow Celtic, you know, who have a, a, a sustained history of supporting Palestine and, you know, uh, have been fanned by UEFA a number of times for the acts they've done, the fans of what they've done at games to show their support for the Palestinian cause. But like football itself in Israel is actually, it's using, you know, it's upholding the Israeli state um, because what, you know, for one thing is that Israel and Israeli teams play in the U European league, you know, um, they don't play as first members. They have to qualify to get into that ring, but that happens a lot with more as, European League has expanded that happened so like teams in the Republic of Ireland are you know the Irish uh, domestic league is not that highly rated internationally so they have to play these kinds of you know preliminary rounds to qualify for the the second rounds so that's where I kind of came across this kind of and it, so what I'm saying is that Israel is sort of using football as a way to legitimize itself internationally, um, despite the fact that, it, you know, some of its teams have an explicitly racist fan base. Um, and, uh, you know, also that the Israeli state uses football infrastructures and actually grants from FIFA and UEFA uh, to build stadiums, to build training grounds as a way to colonize Palestine as well. So that those training facilities are only open to Israelis, not, they're not open to Palestinians, even though they can be within Palestinian territory. So there's a number of things that, you know, FIFA and UEFA decide to kind of overlook um, in its kind of inclusion. And the reason why that was important to me is because I really want to make the point that football or soccer is political and in fact is the most uh, commodified sporting culture there is. It's, it's, and in fact, at its higher echelons is, is the most um, orchestrated and controlled, both in its media uh, representation and also in its organizational representation and in the influx of, you know, million billionaires from across the world into football teams. So that, you know, there's, there's a, a whole load of kind of questions that can be asked about football culture in a broader sense that ultras fan bases are questioning and opposing and resisting, you know, and this is, this is why it links back to, to the ultras. And before we started recording, you talked about how the book's initial name was like Cairo's Utopian Movement, something like that, right? Can you expand more? <laughs> uh, Cairo, well, what was it called? Yeah, it was called Ultras Utopias. Um, and that's because I was, 
you know, thinking not in a, but thinking more about the actual moment uh, of spontaneity and what comes through that, um, you know, versus hegemony and control and deregulation of life. So I feel like within capitalist systems, um, our lives are kind of piecemealed out, you know, they're sort of regulated into little chunks of different kinds of activities, you know, um, but actually true spontaneity and what may come from more, I would say more human values like uh, imagination, you know, can kind of lead to a, a sort of utopian sense of life or maybe lead to a kind of utopian imagination. I mean, utopia is obviously something that is impossible to achieve, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I was sort of thinking about the ultras in Cairo in there. I was thinking about maybe these like derby matches between Zimalik and uh, Al-Athli in Cairo Stadium with, you know, 100,000 people, these incredible displays and how that must have felt like you were sort of really transcending yourself, you know, that true, the collective power of being together, you know, and true these chanting, singing. I mean, I was sort of saying to me, it's almost like Sufi-like experience, you know, yeah, there's something, everyday life is being transcended, you know, and especially if you're a kind of working class Egyptian guy, you know, um, which, I mean, gender is an issue here, right? But, you know, um, you know, you're, you're doing a, a very, you've got a very uh, low paid job, uh, your life is a struggle and you, and you kind of know, you look at your older generations and you can see this is your life, right? You're living in whatever, Ashwayet somewhere in Cairo, you know, you, your life yeah. is going to be that. Um, and it's going to be very hard for you to break out of that, that class that you're, you're, you're within. But yet within that sort of space of the football match, you know, there's some kind of release happening yeah. and it's happening collectively and it's happening with people from different social backgrounds. So your, your sense of yourself and your purpose and your value in life can be some way transcended or enhanced. And I think this is something that, again, we just mentioned a few minutes ago, the Brazilian football culture, the torcida uh you know the samba dancing and all this stuff this again is is something very very similar you know um yeah. so it's i guess it's it's a, the idea the utopia is that it's something about transcending the everyday life the kind of you know the kind of way your life is framed or your options are framed um that you know there, there's an ability even just temporarily to imagine, to feel even beyond that, you know, that that must have been an incredible release. And in some uh, Marxist uh, utopian thinkers like Ernst Bloch, you know, there is this idea of the utopian impulse, you know, that is something that is deeply human, that can't be, like we were talking about what has happened to the ultras, it can't be repressed. It can be curtailed but it can it's it's there it's a it's a life energy force um so this is what i was kind of thinking about initially with the uh with the article i started to work on was that 
experience of stadium spaces, which I then broadened out into a more rounded, I guess, and historically grounded book um, that went into the kind of history of Egyptian football, which itself is fascinating, um, as we know, or as Egyptians well know. <laughs> yeah. And while actually like doing some basic research after having read the book, um, I came across your documentary, which I, I just now knew that it was available freely online on your Vimeo account. And while doing this research, I found that you had a screening in UC Tahrir, and it was around early 2020. And around that period, downtown Cairo was, you know, it was quite tense, you know, so how did that happen? Like, did you face any, like, cases of censorship? Because, like, for me personally, I remember I happened to be there in January, and it wasn't a very pleasant experience. <laughs> and ever since, I actually never went to downtown Cairo, except when I'm wearing um, an ice cap a beanie with the U.S. flag on it, or, um, <laughs> or you know, the Make America Great Again hats, the Trump hats. <laughs> so I would wear them, you know, they would think I'm American, so they would just leave me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that, well, that event in, in the um, Tartier campus, that was organized through the history department, um, who very kindly yeah, it was the history department and it was, yeah, or else it was, sorry, I might be, my memory might be fading a bit. I think it was something, it was a kind of like what they call a Hus lab, which is the, yeah. the humanities in, uh, in AUC. And it was, you know, some, some uh, project they had where they organized a number of discursive events. And I had, the book came out in 2019, uh, in November, and I had traveled to the U.S., to the NESA conference there, and I had presented a paper, but I'd also screened the film as part of the film festival that's part of that conference. And one of the film professors from AUC saw the film and uh, was really taken with uh, my approach to the kind of editing and shooting and in the different way I assembled the uh, material, which is not all my own. A lot of it is found footage and footage from different sources. So they said, well, you know, maybe we should do an event in Cairo. I'd never shown the film in Cairo um, ever, even though it had been shown in London a couple of times and different places. Um, so that was February. And the plan with AUC Press was for the book launch to be in March. So I thought, yeah, this would be quite good. So it was quite a small event. It was uh, maybe 50 people, that's all, in February that came. It wasn't advertised too widely. It was just uh, advertised through word of mouth, really. I, don't, I can't remember now. I didn't uh, do much of that. But uh, it was a discursive event where me and this film professor, Terry Ginsberg, uh, discussed, we screened the film and then we discussed it and um, took some questions from the audience. Uh, so it was kind of a very nice uh, colloquial kind of uh, event. Um, but, you know, there were about, I think about 40 to 50 people there. So, I mean, that's quite, 
that's sort of big enough for an event like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think things always get, like you're saying, I live downtown, so I think things always get tense around the anniversary. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we're all, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, we all know the situation, right? So we're all, yeah, everyone is sort of both cautious, but also not wanting to be utterly um, censored, you know? I mean, this is the kind of internal uh, censorship uh, that goes on. Uh, you can is... just buy a beanie with an American flag or a Trump hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so that was, uh, that was a nice event. Do you look, um, are you planning to do another screening? Because that would be very interesting. Yeah, I haven't, I, it's hard to say. I mean, it's like things are so weird now because I never did the, um, the book launch either. That got postponed indefinitely <laughs> because of Corona. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's like everything is, is weird now. Um, I did, uh, I did a, a, a presentation in, well, actually in a gallery in Germany, but it was organized by the Bauhaus University. They have a, a master's program in public art and engagement. So I did a discussion there where I screened clips from the film and then, you know, discussed some of the ideas from the book. So in a way, I'm kind of linking or synergizing both, both of these different objects, if you like, that deal with the same thing. Um, but also, I think what's my, my relationship, and I think anyone who sees the film, their relationship cha has changed now to the film. You know, like when I made it, uh, and even when I showed it earlier in 2013, before I finished it, and it got a couple of, you know, exhibition screenings even before I'd finished it, because, you know, basically Egypt was one of the most uh you know uh sought after places at that time um but yeah but but even looking at, at that time it didn't feel it it felt like just a kind of imprint of what you would find if you found yourself down in cairo you know in 2000 even in 2012 you could find if you walk through tahrir um you know, you would find various groups or, you know, collectives there or whatever, you know, I mean, there were, you know, I remember the Salafis had had the square for <laughs> a month or so, you know. Yeah. Um, so it seemed to be kind of, almost seemed to be a, a kind of changeover, you know, like, a, you know, shared yeah. spaces, you know, um, yeah. which of course it's is... Garbage, right? Yeah, well, Shway, yeah. like, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, the, but now it's in stark contrast to now where you have this kind of monument, this kind of obelisk, and you have usually have police around it, so you can't even get yeah. close to it. So the whole yeah. kind of public space access is just completely gone now, um, which is transformed. Just like I think in a way the film itself has become a kind of artifact of a past. You know, it, when you look at it now, the particularly the kind of soundscape of it is really like affecting. Um, but it's 
it's something that's gone, you know, and, and I even, I mean, I, I've never, you know, I, if I was to re-edit the film, I'd probably do something different with it now, you know, and, and mm. but I kind of, I kind of feel like I just want to leave it as it was then. I want to leave it as I kind of saw it. I, I would, I would say somewhat naively, right? I wasn't as deep rooted into Egypt as probably I am now. Um, after I was just there a couple of years when I finished editing the film. So it's obvious, but I really feel like it's better to leave it as it is because it's sort of, it's an impression of a time, you know, and to rework it would change it with the kind of lens of now or of what's, or what's happened in the interim years, which has been a, a pretty dramatic uh, shift, reorientation of, uh, you know, the political landscape. And um, I think it's, yeah, so it, it has this, it's almost like a sort of time capsule there, you know, when, when I see it now, um, the relationship changes to it quite a bit. Do, do you have any closing remarks before we <laughs> close up? No, I think that was a very um, fruitful discussion. I think we covered a lot of ground and uh, hopefully there's enough there for your audience to digest and uh, yeah. I hope they find it interesting. And yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, think about subcultures and marginal identities and, uh, you know, why that's really important for the polis, right? For the way we think about politics, um, you know, marginal voices are super important. Last week, Bell Hooks passed away. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, reading her stuff actually really informed me to how I thought about the ultras as well. That, you know, it's, it's we, you know, we have, being marginal is not a, it's not something to be embarrassed about or it's not something to try to cover up, you know. I mean, or it's, it is your autonomy. It is your space. It is your right to be that. And uh, this is what all societies need to work towards, is that a, a much more inclusive, egalitarian agenda, both politically and economically. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. And thank you for this, you know, one-of-a-kind book. <laughs> I think it's the first, the first English book on ultras, right? Yeah, so far, I think yeah. it's the first and only one. On the Cairo Ultras, you mean? Yeah. Or you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of books on the Ultras phenomena in different countries. But yeah, yeah there is another book just came out. Um, came out in the summer. I can't remember exactly when. Uh, which is about Egyptian football. It's written by Carl Rommel, who's a Swedish. Yeah, that's right. Swedish yeah. anthropologist. Um, he's been he's been visiting Egypt for I think since about 2005, so he's got a long heritage. But anyway, there is a sizable section of that book is about the ultras uh, movement. Um, yeah, and it's a really great book. Actually, it's a, it's a really uh, in depth kind of study of Egyptian football. So that's that's another one. So there are now two books. To this in English to this genre, uh, so that's something. And to people listening, um, 
if you're in Egypt, I leave uh, the link to the ASC Bookstore website where you can order Ronnie's uh, Cairo Ultras book. And if you're listening from uh, outside of Egypt, which is the case with like 60% of listeners, I leave an Amazon link. Thank you guys for listening. Okay, thank you very much.